0: Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. In this episode, you'll hear Claire Sheridan in conversation with soloist Madison Kiesler. This episode was recorded on Sunday, February 16th, 2020, before a performance of Program 2, Classical Revision. Hope you enjoy.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist interview at the War Memorial Opera House. My name is Claire Sheridan. I'm the founder of the LEAP program at St. Mary's College of California, and I'm your host here today. My guest today joined the San Francisco Ballet in 2009 after training at the school here. She danced in the Corps until 2013, then moved to London to dance with the English National Ballet, where she performed, among many other roles, the title role in Akram Khan's Giselle. That's a big deal. After four years abroad, she returned to San Francisco Ballet and was promoted to soloist in 2019. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Madison Kiesler.
0: Hello, it's so good to be here.
1: We're so bad, so, so glad you came back home. And this is your first year as a soloist with SFB. How has life changed for you? Oh,
0: I still don't fully believe that I'm a soloist. <laughs> I've this is my 13th year working professionally, so yeah that's a long time standing in the Swan Lake core, so the music that you can hear behind you know you guys maybe think of like the potada de and the beautiful. I hear my legs cramping. <laughs> I actually hear it, <laughs> so um yeah, I mean, it was a beautiful time where you learned so much being in the core, um, but I think anyone who's been in the core for over ten years knows how physically and mentally demanding that can be um i've always had a desire to do principal roles to do you know the leading parts um and yeah it's a nice breath of fresh air to kind of to be able to focus on me a bit more um you know you have to be a bit more selfless when you're in the core and know that it's not about you it's about the whole production and you need to be in line you need to be together um So to have that benefit of being able to say, oh, I can focus on what I'm doing out there, and I'm going to be by myself, and what do I want to do with this musicality, and how do I want to portray this character, and that's
1: a very exciting place to be in my career. Now, the company toured to London last summer, so you returned to your old stomping ground, as it were. Um, How'd that feel?
0: It was great. Um, Yeah, I spent four years in London, And it was a bit weird to have my worlds collide because we were actually came to Saddler's Wells, which, uh, Saddler's Wells Theater, which was one of the main places that English National Ballet performed. So I was, you know, in a dressing room that I had been in before and, but with everyone around me was not English National Ballet dancers. It was San Francisco Ballet. Um, but ironically also when I had, uh, auditioned for English National Ballet was the, time that San Francisco Ballet had been on tour in London before that so there's lots of memories in that theater for me of different times in my career
1: now can you talk about some or a particularly memorable moment on stage here at the Opera House when it all came together for you as an artist when you thought yeah this is great and you floated back to your dressing room it's a moment where you feel this is this is why I do this
0: it yeah it's a good question Um, There are a couple of moments that come to my mind, but actually, funnily enough, the first one that comes to my mind was when I was in school, and I, during the 75th anniversary gala, I got to perform the main part. The school got to be a part of the yearly gala, and we did um, John Newmeyer's Yandering. I was privileged enough to do that main part, and I got to come out as a 16-year-old on this stage in front of a full, excited audience, and it was just me. And I had never felt more comfortable. And that was shocking. You know, I, I was nervous and excited beforehand, and I just remember coming out on this stage and being there by myself, doing my little step, and just feeling so happy. So actually,
1: I, I think it was that was one big point. And uh, at this point in your career as a dancer, what's important to you?
0: Also, good question.
1: (laughs) I work hard on these. Yeah.
0: (laughs) There's a lot for me. I think... I think honesty is very important at this point. Um, To myself, to be honest, to be honest in my performances... Um, to my audience there's so many different aspects of this career there, no matter what you're doing, there's good and bads, um, I feel very grateful that I've been able to make a living from this um, and I, different points in my life, questioned if I wanted to continue dancing and there's a lot of struggles as you know. I think most 20 year olds question what they want to do with their lives but I am so grateful that I worked through that time and that I get to do what I love every day Um, So, you know, I want to keep pushing myself physically and um, technically. I think it's amazing that the body can always continue to improve, even at any age within this, and that's a beautiful challenge. Um, And also, artistically, I've always been drawn to more acting roles and uh, things that have a deep purpose, even if it's more abstract. So to be able to continue working in that way is very important and of course then you have the dream roles in your head that you think of like the Juliet's and the Giselle's and so those are very much still in my head and in my goals
1: Now folks the Occupational Information Network which is supported by the U.S. Department of Labor analyzed data to determine the 20 most physically demanding jobs in the country. They looked at required levels of strength, stamina flexibility and coordination and guess what was the number one most physically demanding job in the country? Dancer, yes. Number two was Derrick operator, oil and gas. <laughs> Do you have any comments?
0: That's very interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised. I'm glad that study was done because, yes, I think, I mean, I, I believe you all know how, how hard we work, and I appreciate all of your support. Um, but, yeah, I think there are a lot of people who, you know, you still, like, I get in a taxi and they say, oh, so what do you do? Oh, I'm a professional ballet dancer with San Francisco Ballet. Oh, okay, so where do you go to school? How do you make a living? And I go, well, you know, actually. <laughs> so it's nice to have that kind of recognition that actually what we do is real and it's hard. We're very fortunate that we're artists and can make a living from what we do. So I don't take that for
1: granted. Um,
0: but, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: now before before joining s f b you decided to be uh, to take on an apprentice position at Hamburg ballet at the ripe old age of seventeen, which I'm sure was exhilarating and terrifying. Can you talk about that a little bit and also any advice that you would give to younger dancers who find themselves in a similar position all alone in a foreign country working
0: It was tough um i yeah, it was an interesting path that I originally was going to go to the school there. Then it turned into a company position, which is fabulous, but um, it was more pressure. You know, it was the first time, I'm pretty positive, it was the first time I had been to Europe, first time I had a paycheck, first time I had an apartment, first time I was living on my own. There's a lot of firsts, you know, and, and you're 17, and it's like, okay, here, be an adult. Okay. <laughs> um, so, you know, there's a lot of learning curves that come with that. I adore still. I adore John Newmeyer. his work, and um, being able to be so young and be immersed in his world was just, it shaped how I view everything still today. And I love, love that we get to work with him still in this company. Um, But I think it's also, my advice, I guess, would be to be kind to yourself. To recognize that what you're doing is difficult. Because I think so often ballet dancers in particular um, can be very high achievers and expect perfection. So I was there and thinking, well, why can't I just do this? Why don't I know how to do that? Why can't why am I learning how to pay bills? I should know how to do that. I should be an adult. I should, you know, you stress yourself out about all these expectations um, of normal life too, that you're trying to figure out as such a young human. <laughs> And then on top of that, your career. And you think time just feels like if you don't do it now, it's going to end. And I, I, it wasn't until I was about 20 that I sat down and I was like, okay, if I'm healthy and lucky and I get to dance till I'm 40, the amount of time that I've been alive as a 20-year-old is the same amount of time I have left in my career. That was a crazy realization from, you know, age 1 to 20. That same amount of time is what I could potentially have left in my career. So I think to... Take a deep breath to realize that not everything is going to happen in your first minutes in a company. Um, And to be kind to yourself, too. I think I was very... I was aware of a lot of those things, but I also would get wrapped up in my head that I wasn't good enough
1: at the same time. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with San Francisco ballet soloist Madison Kiesler, and in a short while, we'll be able to take some questions from the audience. But first, uh, this Meet the Artist interview is one of many audience engagement programs offered by San Francisco Ballet. If you go to sfballet.org and click on the Events tab, you can learn a lot about other really neat workshops, presentations, and social events. Also, podcasts of today's conversation and past MTA interviews can be found on your favorite podcast player. End of commercial. Today, (laughs) we are seeing Program 2 which offers a sandpaper ballet, bespoke, and director's choice, which is a collection of three short works. Madison, you were scheduled to dance in the sandpaper ballet, and you know that ballet well, but you're not performing today. Because I am not, unfortunately. I, I sprained a ligament in
0: my big toe. It's not too bad, but I need a little bit of rest for a week or so. So I'm not performing it today, unfortunately.
1: But you know this piece, and so... Uh, like to ask you some questions about it. The Sandpaper Ballet was created by Mark Morris in 1999, specifically for this company, and it's danced to some pretty catchy tunes, written in the 1940s and 50s by Leroy Anderson. Now, Tina Falant staged it on the current cast. Um, what, what are some of the key ideas that she shared with you about this piece, or when you performed it in 2009? 2000, uh, yeah, 2009. Uh, what do you remember? about some key ideas uh
0: working with tina was great she is such a good energy and um i think has done a great job to bring that piece to life it's it's a fun ballet um it's very enjoyable to watch uh the main thing to me that sticks out in a lot of mark morris's ballets and i've never worked with him directly unfortunately but um the main things that stick out is the musicality. Everything's very musical, and um, he uses that musicality sometimes for comedy or different ways. Um, but no, it's a very enjoyable piece.
1: Can you talk about the grid? There's this, yeah, what is the grid? The
0: grid can be stressful. <laughs> the grid is... Uh, I forget exactly how many dancers there are. There's 25 dancers. Nice. She's prepared. I'm not. (laughs) There's 25 dancers um, all in lines in a grid. There are little cheat marks on the stage for where we should stand, but you are in a different place within that grid at different parts of the ballet. So there are moments when you run on from one side and come on from the other, or maybe you have to finish the dance there. And there are certainly moments where you go, oh my goodness, which spot do I go in? And you have that shared moment with a dancer, and then you hop over to your right spot. Um, but it creates a very satisfying thing. And I, I mean, for me, uh, this, I have no idea if this is an intention, but for me, there's also a very interesting aspect of unity that that grid represents, as well as breaking out of that unity, that it can be a beautiful thing, it can be a chaotic thing, it can be challenging. You know, it, it's such a simple, um, you know, geographical shape, but uh, there's a lot that you can play with that in your mind.
1: Isaac Mizrahi did the costumes, and they are, you know, key to the visual impact of the piece. But how do the guys feel about partnering with gloves? I don't know. I th-
0: There's not... There is some, definitely is some partnering. Um, I would imagine it would be hard. I, I know I've seen them putting on rosin on the gloves to kind of cheat because the costumes are quite slippery. So and Rosin's a sticky substance that dancers use on their feet. Right, or the same that, like, you know, violinists might use on their bow or something. It's, yeah, so we use that a lot.
1: We just kind of cover ourselves with it. <laughs> Um, You know, it's probably the only ballet in the universe that uh, requires a real typewriter to be in the orchestra, and I see it here in the pit, and it's got a piece of paper in it for the authentic sound, so, you know, during the break, you can check it out. Moving on to Bespoke. Um, Now, A Chorus Line is a musical about being a dancer, and Bespoke is a ballet about being a dancer— Bespoke means custom-made, and in this piece, choreographer Stanton Welch explores the love and passion that dancers have for ballet, even though it's a brief relationship, a short career. How do you, we talked a little bit about this before, but how do you relate to this piece, this, this bittersweet love?
0: So not, I've never learned this piece, um, but it was created during the Unbound Festival, so I've seen, you know, parts here and there, of course. Um... I think there's a wonderful aspect to it that it's, and I mean this in the most positive connotation possible, a very uh, easily digestible ballet. You you see it, and um, the dancers are stunning, and they have very difficult technical moments, but there's also some nice um, kind of romantic-feeling
1: moments as well. Um, Yeah, no, it's very satisfying. There's kind of a a motif of, of the time passing. You'll see the hands moving like a a clock, Um, do you have some thoughts about what your career might be after your performing career is completed?
0: I've been thinking about that more and more over the years. Um, I have a lot of different kind of side projects that I'm actually a part of St. Mary's LEAP program, which I'm so grateful for. I started that in 2009, so I'm still uh, been on and off of working towards my bachelors of
1: arts with that program yes leap is a bachelor of arts degree program created specifically for professional dancers and we're in new york and uh, los angeles and san francisco but it was san francisco ballet that got it all that was l- listened to me <laughs> and enabled it all to happen it's 20 years old now and so you're a student in the program working towards your bachelor of arts degree
0: yeah so that i mean that's huge because it used to be you know dancers finished their careers whenever they got injured or hopefully you know at the End and and a lot of times it was very difficult to make that transition, so this program is so helpful in that we can work. While, while we're working, we can also be learning some outside skills. So that's tremendous. Um, so yes, yeah, so I'm taking an anthropology class right now, which is very interesting. Um, uh, on top of that, uh, my partner and boyfriend and I, we have a little production company called Freely Mad, where we've done some different events and videos and things. Um, yeah, and a number of other different projects. But I also have been thinking more and more about... And this actually started with um, when I was in English National Ballet. I've been thinking about the role of artistic director and how much I would love that challenge. Um, I used to say when I was younger that I don't think I'd stay in the ballet world, but honestly, this is my passion, and I think it's so important what we do on this stage. And if I could be some type of leader in the arts world and help bring what we do to more people, to help the dancers, to curate a repertoire, all of those things are fascinating to me. So I've started to do some research into different shadowing programs for artistic directors and um, also looking into different classes that I could start catering, whether that's a bit of marketing, a bit of, you know, some business classes, some different things. So working with my instructors to cater my leap classes
1: towards that goal of hopefully being an artistic director somewhere one day. Uh, director's Choice, there are three ballets you'll be seeing uh, this afternoon, and you've seen each one of them. You're familiar? Can you give a brief comment about each one after the rain? Yeah, after the rain is beautiful. I have
0: seen that actually i think the first time i saw it i was in school it was during the 75th anniversary year i believe um and i remember seeing every single show and rehearsal that i possibly could at that point it was lorena Fejo and sarah van patten and uh Y-Yi was doing it then what ryan was doing it then as well and i never i never get tired of watching that beautiful it's so beautiful the music's beautiful it has this simplicity
1: that's just um breathtaking and we're going to see the Swan Lake Patterde, but it's your, not your daddy's Swan Lake. Pas-de-de. Correct. <laughs> it's David Dawson. Yes.
0: So it's a different take. I remember being very excited when I heard that David Dawson was doing this, and I believe he originally created it for Scottish Ballet. That might be incorrect, but um, so yeah, I was very excited to be able to see bits of it uh, on our stage um, with sophie and Silve and Carlo, and they dance beautifully. So it's still the same music that you expect from the Swan Lake Patterde, but very different more expansive movements on the stage and concerto grosso and concerto grosso i think it tends to be a fan uh, you know an audience favorite and i don't blame them the men that who dance this part are just so beautiful and the choreography showcases them really well music is great it's exciting dynamic
1: um yeah i'm a fan <laughs> so what other roles will you be dancing this season so we can look for you
0: well, I don't know because I, you know, it's nothing's announced yet, <laughs> oh. but I'm, uh, hoping to do some different things. I'm hoping, uh, for midsummers, um, learning some different parts will, which will be fun because that ballet has not been performed here for 30 years. Um, uh, what else do we have in this season? I'll be doing a passionata again, um, which is a great challenge for sure. Um. Yeah, no, we still have... It's hard to believe it's just the beginning of the season. We have a lot of interesting things coming up.
1: So we're going to take a question in, in a bit, but what do you do after performance? And how long does it take you to calm down to go to sleep? I mean, Or do you just, do you just crash, or are you up there thinking about the performance?
0: De- depends on the show. Depends on how I'm feeling. Depends on what I have the next day. <laughs> um Luckily, I get to go home and, um, yeah, be with my beautiful little cat and dog, who bring me so much joy, (laughs) as well as my boyfriend, Ben. And it's nice, actually, to have someone in the world that we can just kind of debrief a little bit, but also just not think about it at all at the same time. And um, I usually have a beer. I am a fan. I blame my German roots, and I'm almost 30, so it's okay that I have a beer. Um, uh, and, yeah, a good dinner. Always eat a ton after shows, for sure, because it's hard sometimes, depending on what you're dancing, to eat so much right before the shows. So by the time, you know, that's all done, I'm usually pretty relaxed. But I'm working on making my sleep patterns a bit better
1: as well. So Okay, let's take some questions. Anybody have any questions for... Yes, sir. Did you do the same work as in London that you did here, and are there major differences? I'm trying to think.
0: I definitely did from Hamburg Ballet to here. Um, I did Mermaid there as well as here. I'm trying to think in London in particular. Well, I've certainly done, you know, like um, Swan Lake and some of the full classicals. Like, I've done Swan Lake here and in London. Um, there's different versions, Um The main difference, I think, would be more in in the process um, because this company has such a diverse repertoire, which is fantastic, and it's all performed within a very short period of time. You have to be much more active as an individual dancer in order to prepare yourself in this company because there just isn't the luxury of time, Um, whereas the way that the season was scheduled in London, you'd really just work on the one ballet and then you'd perform it. So you might have more weeks to just focus on Swan Lake or just focus on whatever you might be doing at that time and then perform it. Whereas here in, you know, from January to May, we have eight different programs, three
1: full lengths and the rest are triple bills. So that's a lot of things to keep in your head. What also surprises me is that you learn a lot of this choreography during the summer or or in the fall and then it's March, time to perform. I mean, isn't that that must be very difficult. Yeah,
0: it's a fascinating thing. And a part of me enjoys it for some ballets because, yeah, you learn it six months ahead of time. And um, then you don't touch it or think about it until, you know, six months later. And sometimes the body will remember interesting things uh, more than your brain does or vice versa. So it's a, a very interesting thing to look at that muscle memory and to bring something
1: back and have it feel fresh or distant or whatever it might be. Other questions? Um, there's so many, there are things in the arts that often are unplanned, and can you think of a, a surprise you've had on stage when you said that was really neat, or to expand on the question, it was like, oh, dear. <laughs> Somehow
0: I'm always very bad at recalling the funny things that happen. I think I just I, I block out if I fall or whatnot, but I, there have definitely been moments like that where you come on and you slip and fall and your grand entrance is ruined. Um, <clears throat> for me, I think that the things that stick in my head, which I suppose is a bit more taking it a bit more serious route, is um, the moments when I've been able to experience, like take Akram Khan's Giselle, for example, and I've rehearsed that role and, and to dive into it's a much more contemporary version of Giselle, but to dive into that character and that who that human being is and how you think you understand it in one way and you've done rehearsals and you've discovered different things throughout that process, but then you do it in front of an audience and sometimes it can just change completely from night to night based on the energy that you're receiving from the audience. Um, Yeah, I'll end up... And the way Akram choreographs is so beautiful because there's a lot of freedom within the choices you can make as an artist. So you might be on stage sometimes and you do something that you weren't really expecting, but it feels right in that moment for that audience, for that night,
1: for that moment. So I think that's definitely a surprising part. Can you generalize about our audiences different in Germany versus London versus San Francisco? I feel, I mean, we're very fortunate in San Francisco
0: to have the audience, to have you all. And I, I say that very genuinely because... Um, You know, there aren't nearly as many people coming in and out of this city as, say, a London or New York, Or, um, yet our audience is is always here. They're here to support us again and again, which is fascinating. So I think here there are definitely more audience members that are repeating audience members. Um, Germany, I'll never forget how uh, impactful John Neumeier is to Hamburg Ballet and to the city. Um, You know, you there. You get into a taxi driver and you say, oh, I'm a dancer with John Neumeier's company and they go, oh my goodness, with John Newmeyer!" because, you know, he's a very prolific figure over there. The, the lines for the ballet will be wrapped around the opera house to get tickets every single night. You bow for 20 minutes which, as much as you appreciate that, sometimes you just want to go home. <laughs> so, you know, I appreciate your appreciation at the end of the performances here. It's perfect. <laughs> um... Yeah, and then in London, I think it was a similar sense that actually the audience tended to be quite different every night. Um, but no, it's been amazing to perform around the world and feel those different energies from the audience.
1: But I'm glad you're here.
0: I'm glad I'm here, too.
1: <laughs> well, folks, uh, yes, yes we, we do need to wrap up. Please uh, join me uh, in thanking our guest today, San Francisco Ballet soloist Madison Kiesler. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to San Francisco Ballet's Meet the Artist podcast. For more podcasts and other audience engagement programs, check
1: out sfballet.org or your favorite podcast player.